When was the last time that you went all out for something? That you went full send? No reference to those milk boys' intention. I think the last time that I went all out was when I gave birth to Tabitha. <laughs> Just kidding, babe. I was there. You did all the work. But it got me to thinking about some of the things that are going on recently. In fact, last night, I know that there was more of these happening. But I thought about when guys ask out girls, or vice versa, to WOFO or HOKO or prom or one of those things. And I thought, there's some creative, there's some creative ways that people have done this before. For instance, one of my favorites, I think, is a local person. Um, he should come to True North, if so, because he's creative. Noel, I adore you. <laughs> I thought, that's clever. I like that. If some dude came to my house asking for my daughter with a door in his hand, I think I'd be a little more impressed by that. I think the only way he could outdo himself is if he brought a garage door. Like, that would have been even more impressive. I garage adore you. Doesn't roll off the tongue as equally well, but still, it's exciting. That's clever. That's clever. Some guys go all out in a different way. They might beg their chem teacher to say, hey, let me interrupt the class to ask out my prom date. I think this is also a local couple. They look vaguely familiar. Vaguely familiar. <laughs> there was a there's still guys that like to do the poster boards. Those are cool too. Like there's nothing wrong with poster boards. Um, I, I, I saw this one. I thought that looks familiar. There's something in there that's related to the, the play. I couldn't quite read the sign, but I thought that was cool. It's creative. It has, in fact, one of the ones that won, uh, one of the Laguna Hills high school proposals, I, I didn't download the video, but there was a song involved and all this other stuff. But the poster boards are cool. Speaking of poster boards, there was another poster board that I saw recently that involved another couple that looks vaguely familiar. But I think by far my most favorite involved terrifying the person that you're asking out. <laughs> like if you really want to make an impression on someone, you scare them. And not just any time of the day, in the middle of the night, in their home, and preferably in their bedroom. You... You don a mask. Like, what better way to make an impression on someone that you care about? Like, here, let me, let me give you nightmares for the rest of your life. Terrifying. But here's the thing. I think the guys or the girls who do these crazy ask-outs, none of them probably walk away saying, what a complete waste of my life. Like, no one's, no one's saying that. Because every act of love is going to seem wasteful. Love, in fact... Is and by its very definition requires some sense of sacrifice, some sense of wastefulness. And here's the, here's the parallel I want to make with you guys. One of the things that I noticed about today's culture, youth culture, even adults, is that we have a hard time thinking in terms of love for Christ in wasteful ways, ways that are appropriately wasteful. So let me let me put it to you like this: One of the reasons that your devotional life in your quiet time with Jesus, or even when you come to church, your worship time. For some of you, that time is boring, it's bland, it's not fun, it's not helpful, you're not enjoying it, you're not experiencing any of this weird, like this spiritual high that people sometimes talk about. Your, your, your devotional life with Christ is devoid of anything good. And I think one of the reasons why is because you're not worshiping the way you're supposed to. 
You're not devoting yourself to Christ the way that you're supposed to. So we look at things like this and we think, oh, this is so cool. What a, what a great act of care. We might say love. You know? What a great act of like, consideration and thoughtfulness. And yet when we approach our devotional time with Christ or when we come to church, that same mentality of thoughtfulness and sacrifice is often absent. You get what I'm saying here? When you come to church today, the, the, perhaps some of the greatest sacrifices that you make is, I had to drive to church, and then I sat down. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the extent of it for your devotional time. It might be like, yeah, I opened my Bible, and I checked the box, and then I closed it, and then I went to things that were more important to me, and that's it. That's the extent of your sacrifice. There should be, and this sermon really all is, is all about a, a sense of both thoughtfully given and personally costly sacrifice to God, worship to God, devotion to God. And if your, your spiritual life isn't characterized by both something that's thoughtful and sacrificial, you're falling short, I think, of what the Bible calls us to when it says, when you, when you come to worship the Lord your God, that you're to do it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to look at a character in Scripture that I love. This is one of my favorite characters. She's not one of the apostles. In fact, she's a she. But she's one of the most, I I think I resonate with this girl. Like, I feel like we're spirit animals. Like, we're the same person almost. I just love her heart and her mentality. And I would love for you to learn from her today. Turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to learn about a young lady who demonstrates to us what it should look like to worship Jesus appropriately, to devote yourself to him rightly. To even approach, to, to approach worship, to approach church with the right attitude and the right posture. She kills it. She nails it. And I love the way she does it. We're going to learn from this young lady today. And one of the ways that we're going to learn from her is learning by contrast. What Mark does in chapter 14 is he's going to sandwich the account we're studying with two accounts. And the first one starts off in verses 1 and 2. Here's how it starts. He says... For historical context, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, let's not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so that's the first section that starts this whole text. What you're seeing in this text is a group of people who are really working hard. They're seeking ways in order to kill Jesus by stealth. They're they're planning ways to approach Jesus in such a way that they could dispose of him quietly. And you'll notice they don't want to do it during the feast. Which feast are they talking about? The feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. They kind of get lumped together under one umbrella. The Passover starts on day one and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, let me do it this direction, the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes over the next seven days. So uh, Passover day one, next seven days, Feast of Unleavened Bread, they get umbrellaed under the same, the same context. And they're saying, let's not take care of Jesus during this time because the people, we don't want to upset the people. The people are going to have an uproar. They'll riot because they know that Jesus is someone special. And furthermore, we don't want to create any similarity between Jesus and the Passover. They're aware of these things. So think of a sandwich again. This is the first piece of bread. Passover, the scribes and the Pharisees looking for ways to kill Jesus. And now, introduce the first piece of salami. Here you go. And while he was at Bethany, Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. 
A couple notes here. Notice where he is. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in Bethany. Bethany's the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is a place where he says he's reclining at table. He's enjoying a meal with some of his close friends. And then this unnamed woman comes in with a very expensive bottle of perfume. Think about, in fact, think about a, a, an expensive bottle of perfume that in most cases would have been priceless. There is a price given to it, and we'll talk about that in a second, but she brings something very special for herself that would have been part of her dowry. It would have been something she would have given to be married to somebody. It could have been used for medicinal purposes. There's a lot of reasons why she might have had this, but suffice it to say, it's very precious, very special, very expensive, and she brings it to Jesus. And not only does she bring it to Jesus, but she breaks the whole thing and dumps all of it out. Every single last drop expended some might say, wasted on Jesus. That's the first piece of salami. We're going to come back to that. The last piece of bread. We're going to skip over a big chunk and go to verses 10 and 11. I want to show you how Judas responds to this. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. From then on, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. You'll notice in each of these three accounts, you have the chief priest and the scribes, you have unnamed woman, and then you have Judas. All three of them are planning something. Chief priests and scribes are planning to kill Jesus. Unnamed woman is planning to worship Jesus. Judas is planning to betray Jesus. Let's put all those three together under the heading of planning and preparation. Let's think about it that way. The first lesson we should learn from this unnamed woman and her counterparts is this. Now, when we come to Jesus, the very least that we owe to him is preparation. Let's prepare to worship Jesus. We shouldn't worship him like the chief priests and scribes, obviously. They're trying to kill him. We shouldn't do it like Judas. He's trying to betray him. We should do it like this unnamed woman who's planning and preparing to thoughtfully and sacrificially give herself fully to Jesus. Speaking of preparation and thoughtful consideration and even sacrifice, I thought again about uh, Wofo, Hoko, and Prom. This is one of the few days of year when guys take an extra shower that day. They get dressed, they might go get a haircut first, they rent an expensive tux, or they rent expensive clothes. Not everybody, but most of them do. They might, uh, they might wear cologne that's expensive, you know, something that you get from a French shop, I would su- suspect. They do things like brush their hair, they add product to their hair, like these guys are clearly very well groomed. They might shave, if they have any peach fuzz, they'll shave that off. <laughs> if they have anything going on, they might... Uh, they might try to get a nice ride for you to go with them to the dance, whatever it is. Uh, they, they, they do things like uh, they plan for places where you might take photos. I mean, guys go all out for this. Now, ladies, I know you go all out for this too. I don't, I don't know half as much as what happens for you, but I know there's exfoliating going on. You start getting ready like three weeks beforehand, and there's like a slow ramp up to the event. Guys, we take a day. No, not that long. We take some of the day. We take a few minutes to get ready, but it's more than average. It's more than that. We really go out of our way to prepare. Why? Because it's a meaningful event. We care and you care. It's meant to be one of those special events that you have in your life, and you should. And yet, often there's a nonchalant attitude that that is given when we approach Christ. And not to say it has to be exactly the same. It doesn't, I don't expect you to wear your Sunday's best when you come to church. We're not that kind of church. But you'll notice that a lot of churches, they do do that. They wear suits and ties, and I know we're not stodgy. We're Southern California. I get all that. But the idea is that we're coming to something special. 
We're coming to something meaningful. We ought to be prepared to come. And Mary, when she's approaching Jesus, she brought her whole alabaster flask. Now, if she was preparing to do something kind to Jesus, she might have brought, you know, a little portion of it, put some in her hand, and, and then kind of sprinkled it on Jesus. But she brought the whole thing. She knew exactly what she was going to do. She made a calculated decision about how she would sacrifice and show that she loved her Savior. At the very least, we ought to be prepared when we come to see Jesus. In our devotional time, in our worship time, in our gathering on Sunday or Saturday, we ought to be prepared. How? Well, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, and even like Judas, and even like this unnamed woman, we ought to be seeking out ways to honor him. Later, Jesus would say, this woman did what she could. She did what she could. She didn't do what she couldn't do. (laughs) That sounds obvious to say, but he makes a point. She did what she could. What could you do? Search out ways to honor Jesus. And I can just point to one small thing that would be helpful to you. Think about this. There are times in your life when you step back and like, oh, that was so good. I saw, my, I mean, I see my daughter, she'll, she'll say something cute, and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. I love that. Uh, my, my newest daughter, she'll smile or make weird faces, and I love it. It warms my heart. But I mean, think about all the times in your life where something happens to you, and suddenly you're aware, like, man, it's good to be alive. Think about the last time you laughed heartily where you were so satisfied at the end of that laugh, you're like, man, that was a good workout. That felt so good. I feel so good right now. Those are the moments where you could turn around and say, God, thank you for giving me life. Life is good. Life is amazing. Or how about when you take a bite into that double-double and that cheese? And I mean, okay, I always talk about food. I know that. But you, you taste the food and you're thinking, man, Lord, thank you for amazing food. God could have made food tasteless. You could have had no sense of taste. You ever think about that? And yet God gave us orange juice and cotton candy and, I mean, barbecue and all sorts of things where it's like, man, Lord, you gave us so many good gifts. Lord, let me honor you with those good gifts. Someday you guys will experience the joy of being married and having a kid or like me when you get to watch a baby come out of places. (laughs) You'll say to yourself, wow, God, that's amazing. And you should say then, God, you're so good. You're seeking out ways to honor him. And, and here's the thing. Everywhere you look around, there's ways. Even in this very room, if you would just pay attention and focus on what God is doing in your life, you would find ways where you could honor and esteem him well. The clothes you're wearing that are warming you or cooling you down in some cases. The teeth in your mouth that for most of you have had braces on them to make them impossibly straight. <laughs> for some of you, you have teeth whitener that makes your teeth light up a room. Literally. We could turn off the lights and you would smile and the room would be lit. Your teeth are so bright. I mean, there's so many things where you could say, thank you, God, you're so good to me. One of the ways that you could seek out to honor Christ is by giving him your full and undivided attention. Your full and undivided attention. There's a story that includes the gal that to yet I have not named in this, in this text of scripture where she is highlighted as getting it right and her sister gets it totally wrong. Let me show you that text real quick. It's found here in Luke chapter 10. Verse 38, Jesus again is in Bethany, and here's what happens. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha came and welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was, there's that word that I want you to pay attention to, Martha was distracted. What's she distracted with? Too much Twitter, too much what? what? No, she's distracted with something good, serving. She's picking up after Jesus. She's providing the meal. She's doing what she should do. But here's what happens. 
She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all by myself? Tell her then to help me. And pay attention to what Jesus says to her. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Wow. You want to seek out ways to honor Jesus. I want you not to be Martha here. I want you to be Mary, who instead of being distracted with good things, focuses instead on the best thing. Have you ever been talking to somebody and, and, and they're talking to you or you're having a conversation, but you're not really connecting to them? Like they're talking to you, but they're looking past you or they're looking at their phone. They're distracted at some other, like you're there, but you're not really there. I know for some of you, you're getting used to that. That's kind of part of where our culture's headed in terms of social etiquette, but I would encourage you to think about that. When do you feel most valued by someone? Is it not when they're looking at you, talking to you straight in the eye, and giving you their full and undivided attention? Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> it feels like, wow, these guys, this person really likes me, I guess. They really want to hear what I have to say. And that's the thing. That's what honor looks like. Honoring Jesus and seeking out ways to honor him is giving him your full and undivided attention, even amidst the opportunity to have a lot of other good things taking place. For instance, you might be up here, uh, or you might be down there, and Ian's leading worship, and maybe someone texts you a funny joke or a meme or something, and, like, and it's maybe somehow contextual, like it's related to what's happening here. You might keep that good thing in your pocket in order to focus on the best thing, which is Jesus. Like, there's a lot of opportunity for distraction in your life. I know this. Now, here's my charge to you. If you truly want to honor Jesus, at the very least, you need to turn off distractions. And I don't only mean your phone, which is obviously a good application. You should turn off distractions. But if you truly want to honor Jesus, if you want to experience what a real spiritual life is meant to be, slow down and spend time with Jesus. Martha was doing good things, but Mary chose the best thing. Which lady are you right now? Gentlemen, this is the only time I'm going to ask you which lady you are. Okay, just go with me. Which lady are you? Are you Martha or are you Mary? Are you Martha who's busy running around from AP class this and extracurricular activity that? Or are you Mary sitting at the feet of King Jesus, spending time listening and connecting with him? Eliminate distractions. Give him your full and undivided attention. Be intentional with him. That's the first way that you could honor him. One of the best ways. Another thing that you should do is determine not to let people distract you from pleasing God. Let me tell you something. When, when Mary came to Jesus to, to, to give him this exceedingly awesome gift, there were people around there who would have discouraged her from doing that. In fact, you're going to read all about that. But she chose to continue doing what was good for Jesus anyway. She chose not to let people distract her. In fact, did you notice also that the chief priests and scribes, they wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to do it in such a way where they could maintain the respect of the people? Did you notice that? They said, let's do it stealthily and let's kill him quietly so that no one knows that we did this. They're trying to please people at the same time that they're trying to kill Jesus. Those two things don't make sense to me, but that's what they're trying to do. Mary tosses out the, play, the playbook for social interaction and says, I'm going to do for Jesus what he deserves regardless of what you people think about me. When you approach Jesus in your worship time or at, at church, is there ever a sense in which you say, I don't want to sing that loud because they might hear me. I don't want to clap because that might look weird. I don't want to raise my hands because people might think I'm that crazy kid. People are stopping you from giving Jesus what he actually deserves. 
Do you realize that? If that's happening, you're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. One of the things I loved at RWE this year, and I've seen it a lot, you guys always do this, and I love this, is that when you guys are worshiping God, do you notice that there's a difference between how you do it here and how you do it there? I don't know if it's the lighting or the altitude or what, but what I notice is that you guys are actually engaged in ways that I'm like, man, I, I, barely, I don't see that. I don't see that as often as I would like to see that, but I love it because it doesn't take in consideration the fact that this guy's looking at me or my crush is over there or, you know, I sound terrible. It's like, I don't care what anything else is going on right now. It's all about me and Jesus, and that, that's all I really care about. That's the heart that we should have every single week, every single week. Determine to please God and not people. Also, you look at Judas and you think about, man, what a jerk that dude is. He's evil. He's wicked. All those things are true. But you shouldn't look at Judas and say, man, that guy was a wreck. He's a mess. He betrayed Jesus. You should look at other people's sin and say, but there, but by the grace of God, go I. You should never look at someone else's sin and say, they're evil. They're wicked. They were too weak. They're not good enough. Those things may be true, but don't think that you're made of something different. You and I and the person who failed Jesus so miserably are made of the same stuff. We are also flesh and blood. We are also dust. And until you get it in your head that you are capable of great and evil sin, you're going to start thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The problem with all of this is that we look at other people, we judge them, and we say, man, those guys are bad, those are evil. But we don't look at ourselves and say, man, God, thank you for preserving me. Please protect me from myself. I hear stories all the time about pastors who, yeah, pastors who do terrible things, say terrible things, commit great acts of evil, and I think, how could that happen? These guys are men of the book. They're preaching. They're teaching. They're praying with people, and yet they, they go off and they do the worst things possible. And then I start thinking, you know, Lord, don't let me look at them and say, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there because then I start sounding like the Pharisee and the publican, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector who says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other people around me. I fast, I give, I'm amazing at preaching. Thank you that I'm not like that other guy over there. You and I ought to look at those people out there, the sinners out there, and say, man, Lord, protect me. Keep me from thinking of myself more highly than I ought. And in fact, where are you disloyal to Jesus? Where in your life right now are you struggling to be obedient to him? If you do that, you'll approach God differently. You'll approach God with humility, with a desire to love him, with a desire to be fed with gratitude. Chief priests and the scribes rejoiced that Judas was willing to hand Jesus over. They were glad about it. They were glad and they promised to give Judas money. And then he sought an opportunity to betray him. Nothing wrong with enjoying good things that God has given you. Get a new pair of shoes, get a new computer, some, your parents might gift you with a new car. Fantastic. You should be excited about that. That's great. But here's the thing. When, when or how are you getting excited about Jesus? Are you getting anything, is there any emotional connection to Jesus himself? Your prayer time, your quiet time, coming to church, is there any part of you that says, this is so exciting to me, I'm excited about this? Because here's the truth. You only have emotional concern about things that matter to you. For instance, raise your hand if you get emotional about NASCAR. Anyone else? No? No one. Great. One person. Okay. <laughs> no one gets emotional about NASCAR because most of us, don't care about NASCAR. Who gets emotional and excited about Spider-Man movies? Set, Quinn's not here. Is Quinn here? No, Quinn is not. With exception of Quinn, most of us aren't, aren't that excited about it. 
because you don't have an emotional connection to things you don't care about. If you get a level 10 excited about your sports team, about your school, about your homework, maybe not your homework, but you get level 10 excited about that. But when it starts coming into Jesus stuff, talk, his word, you get level two or level one, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. Got to rejoice in what really matters. Well, how do I do that? Well, let me show you. Let me show you how you do that. These next few verses comment on what Mary has just done for Jesus. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold and given, uh, sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Think about that for a second. Someone has just done this amazing act for Jesus, and then the people around her, Judas leading the charge, says, you stupid and foolish woman. What would possess you to do something like that for Jesus? What is your problem that you would waste all of this good perfume on Jesus? You are an idiot to the 10th degree. They scolded her. Like this is, they're spitting fire at her. I like the way that John puts it. John tells his same story, but he adds a few more details that I think are important for you. Take a look here, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, she's doing what Martha does. Martha's serving, of course. And Lazarus was one of those reclining uh, with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and a anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, ladies, I know you care about your hair, but think about this. Imagine wiping Pastor Ron's feet with your hair. That'd be gross, and I'd be a little uncomfortable myself. But this girl does that. She puts it on his head and on her feet, emptying out the whole bottle on Jesus, essentially. His whole body is probably covered in this perfume. And then she takes her, his, her hair, and she gently, and I'm sure lovingly, washes his feet. And then, not only that, but if you ever had a bottle of expensive perfume, like some of it spills on the counter, like the whole place, that whole area is like, oh, you can smell it 20 feet away. Imagine what a pound of expensive, pure perfume would have done on the body of Jesus. The whole room was almost probably suffocating with the smell. Like, wow, that is just powerful. She wasted all on Jesus. And it says here that it was 300 denarii, denarii worth of the ointment. And a, a, denarii, a denarius would have been about one day's worth of an average labor. So what would that be for today's day and age? Okay, what's the average or the median income from Aliso Viejo? You're looking at about $102,000. So if you take $102,000, let us just say for the sake of our example here, that someone came to, to Jesus and he offered him $90,000, because that's about what we're looking at here. 300 out of 365, let's just call it $90,000, make it easy, easy math. Bring it to Jesus, and then people around him are like, what are you doing, Aaron? That's, you know, that's like 90% of your income for the year. Why would you give all that money? To you? What are you going to live on? How are you going to get married? How are you going to go, you know, how are you going to get, have kids? You're putting too much money. You're giving him way too much. But the thing is, Mary is on to something. She's doing something that you and I don't do nearly enough. She's making sure that the worship she gives to Jesus is actually costing her something. That's point number two. Make sure worship costs you. 
Make sure that when you offer Jesus something, it's not like, eh, no big deal, pocket change. I'm making it matter. She made it hurt. Why? Because she knew that Jesus was worth her sacrifice. Because he was about to sacrifice himself for her. She knew that this tiny thing that she was doing for Jesus was no, in no way comparison to what he would do for her. Make sure worship costs you something. Imagine with me a hypothetical scenario. Imagine a peer of yours. Let's say he works at In-N-Out. He makes good money because he works at In-N-Out. Has a nice stockpile of cash. And just to give you a picture, let's just use an image here. He works at In-N-Out, has a ton of money, and he knows that his date, that he just asked to prom or whatever, she wants to go to a nice restaurant like Mastro's or Roots Chris or Denny's. And he knows this. <laughs> he knows this. But on the night of the prom, when he picks her up on his bike, he takes her not to Mastro's or Ruth's Chris or Denny's, but he takes her to Jack in the Box. And he says, hey, you can have anything on the menu that you want on the dollar menu. <laughs> and not only that, but I forgot to bring you that flower thing I was supposed to give you. Um, but here, here's my bike chain. I can, let's put this around your wrist. It's all I could find. I didn't prepare for this. <laughs> I don't think that this poor girl that we're just hypothetically making up would, <laughs> would appreciate the evening that much. Why? Well, because really, <laughs> I don't think he's even here. <laughs> he, put not, he put no effort into the evening. He didn't put any money down. He, the, the, the night essentially cost him nothing. He co- it cost him nothing. You guys have heard the term before, actions speak louder than words, right? Or how about this, put your money where your mouth is. Even colloquially, we understand that if something's going to really matter to us, we have to give our best effort. It has to cost us something. And if it doesn't, we're lying. We, we don't actually care about the thing that we say we do. So here's the thing. We show our love by our willingness to give of ourselves to others, whether it be materially or emotionally or physically. Love costs. Now, when it doesn't cost, we're showing ourselves to not love at all. Young lady, the young man that says, I love you, is not going to show you that he loves you by taking advantage of you, but by giving of himself to you in tangible ways. In tangible ways. Really, the Bible doesn't say anything different. In fact, we read about this not too long ago. You shall love the Lord your God. How? With all your what? And? And? And strength. The Bible says comprehensive love. It's comprehensive love. And it's a, it's a giving love, but here's three ways it should cost you. We're going to use those verses there to make sense of this. The first way it should cost you is your heart and your soul. In other words, the things that you value most, that is where you know that something matters to you. And one of the best and clearest ways that you'll find that out is how you spend your money. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. You want to know what you really love and value? Ask yourself, what little money you have, where do you spend it? The little money that God has given you, where do you spend the money that you, that you have? If you're a member of the church, if you care about Christ's kingdom, let me tell you this, you're not exempt from the command to give and to give generously. You might have a, you know, a, a minimum wage job, 
or you might work in in and out whatever your job is, there's an obligation as a Christian that you are contributing to Christ's kingdom. And where your money goes, your heart follows that. In other words, if you want to grow in love for something, put money toward that thing. Because suddenly, you have an active and invested interest in whatever that thing is. If you started giving 100 or 200 bucks to Compass 2020, starting tonight or tomorrow, you would suddenly care a lot more about that venture. Why? Because you have skin in the game. God made it so simple for us. Why? Because you worked hard at that thing. You worked hard to get that money. You worked hard to acquire that. And so when you give it away, it feels painful. There's a sense in which that's good. What you choose, rather, what you most value is revealed by where you spend your money or where and when you choose not to make money. If you got a job, and the job said, you know what, young person, I can hire you, but you have to work Sundays at 11 and from 9 to 5. Sundays from 9 to 5. And you have to work Wednesdays from 3 to 10. What would you say to that job? I hope the answer would be, I can't. I can't do that. No, let me make it even more complicated. They also said Saturday. I want to work Saturday from 4 to 10 as well which you, you see what I'm doing, right? I'm eliminating any possibility for you to have any meaningful connection to your church. Your job says, well, we'll pay you $20 an hour. We'll give you $20 an hour to work during those specific times. What would you say? You will show what you value most by choosing to not make money during that specific time. And here's the thing. I think God would honor you for that decision. To say, you know what, God, I'm going to choose not to make $20 now. I'm going to make $8.75 or whatever it is the minimum wages now. Instead, at, at, you know, at McDonald's, sorry, I just dated myself, didn't I? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll make this much at McDonald's instead of taking that job, and I'm going to trust you, God, to provide for the lack that I have because I'm doing something that I think will honor you. Young person, what you value most is going to be seen by where you spend your money or where you choose not to make money. It should cost you. If you're a Christian, it should cost you. Not only in your values, your deep-seated values, in particular where you spend your money, it also should be revealed in your thought life. I was trying to find on the internet how many thoughts a day people have. Have you ever thought about that? Thought about your thoughts? How many thoughts per day do you have? Take a guess at what the numbers are. Throw the numbers out. A billion... Four, I heard. The four. <laughs> Seven million. Define thought. That's a good, that's, that's a good definition. And the thing is, I, I, I was trying to find different articles, and the most scholarly of articles could only posit a wild guess. Because the answer is we don't know. Because defining what even a thought is is complicated enough already. And so what I found is somewhere in the ballpark of twelve to 50,000. Who knows? Essentially, we have no clue, but here's our best guess. Let's, for the sake of our example, make it easy, okay? So let's just say, let's just say a thousand. You have a thousand thoughts a day. If you had a thousand thoughts per day, take inventory now, take personal inventory, how much of your thoughts, what percentage of your thoughts are God-oriented? Don't answer out loud, but be honest for a second. In your heart, answer the question, how many of your thoughts, what percentage are God-oriented? They're thoughts that, that dwell or play upon the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. They're scriptural. You're reciting from memorization. Or you're praying. 
or you're communicating thoughts that are inherently good and true and biblical. I mean, that's what it means when God says, I want all of your life. I want your heart, soul, mind. I want everything, that everything that I do all in the day. Okay, you're at McDonald's. What would you like? Okay, can it, is that for here or to go? Can you do that to the glory of God? Absolutely. I can have a God-oriented attitude and heart as I deliver Big, big Macs and fries. And I think that's where God is intend, attending for. Your thoughts are so saturated with the glory of God that every part of your life is saturated with serving him, honoring him, thinking Godward thoughts. One of the biggest enemies toward that, I timed the sermons, this guy. You know who Sean Parker is? He was a first president of, C, uh, of Facebook. Here's what he had to say about the design of social media. He said, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content and that's going to get you more likes and more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because we're exploiting a vulnerability in your human psychology. You are the product and not the consumer. You are, your attention is the product. And guys like this who design Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and every other social media app on, under the sun, they're meant to exploit your psychology by saying, I demand your attention. The, the, the Instagram notification or the TikTok notification that shows up, like, oh, more people like my video. Someone commented on my post. In fact, I was so, <laughs> there's this, ah, there's this pull. When I posted about my baby on, on all the social media, I felt like I should do this. I want people to know. I want people to celebrate with me. But I had this compulsion to go through every single comment and post and either at least like it. <laughs> like I, have to, I, I saw this, like. I saw this, like. I saw this. I want people to know that I acknowledge their, their kindness at commenting or whatever on my post. And I thought that's so curious that I feel that. I think part of that's by necessity because we're social creatures. But the other part is that like, that's Facebook and Instagram won't let me not pay attention to that. It gives me notifications that you guys are liking or saying things on my post. And I, I think that's helpful. But just know, this little guy in your pocket is not necessarily your friend. You have to tame it like you would any other powerful weapon to help keep your mind focused on what matters most. Most of you guys, if you're like me, you use your iPad or your phone to read your Bible, right? Most of us? No? Okay, most of us. Except for you. (laughs) But the problem with that is that when you get a notification, even if you have the best of intentions, what ends up happening? Let me see what's going on. Swipe down. Oh, oh, look at that. What's going on? Next thing you know, you're on a rabbit trail. You're five layers deep into something else. Like, what was I doing? Oh, I was reading the Bible. Let me go back to that. Oops. Like, there's so much pain and distraction here. But here's the thing. Your thoughts, your thoughts need to be tailored to Christ. And when is that more, okay, for a second. When is that more obvious than in your prayer time? Okay. How many of you guys have ever been distracted in prayer? Okay. Except for that side. Good. Good job, guys. (laughs) You guys are nailing it over there. Thank you. Everyone on this side, that side was like, nope, we got it. Pros. <laughs> the Puritans would say, you should pray until you pray. Which is to say that often when you're praying, does it ever feel like you're just kind of, like your wheels are spinning in mud? Like, oh man, this is so hard. I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to focus. And yet, like 10 minutes later, you're still struggling. 
The Puritans would say, pray until you pray. That is, stay in there and keep going deep until you get to that magic moment where it's like, all right, I'm focused, I'm here, I'm praying. God, you have my, my attention. You have my thoughts. Not only my thoughts, but my actions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I read a statistic that said the average boy spends 13 hours a week playing video games. The average girl spends five. The average young American will spend 10,000 hours playing video games by age 21. That's twice the time it takes to earn a bachelor's degree. You feel that? You may not be a gamer, but according to this article, girls and guys, we're, we're all gamers, I guess. But maybe you're a Netflix binge watcher, or maybe you're a YouTuber, or maybe you like Hulu, whatever your streaming media of choice is. You're a Disney Pluser, and you watch Mandalorian five times. <laughs> whatever it is, what you give your life to, the time that you spend doing stuff is your life. Do you realize that? The hours and the moments of your life are precious and meaningful. What you give your life to is casting a vote for the person you are going to become. If you spend countless hours playing video games or streaming media or whatever it is, that's saying, with my life, God, with my precious possession of life, I'm giving myself fully to this thing. Does that count? Does it, is that going to pay off for you? Your life as a Christian should cost you. How we spend our time is how we spend our lives. It is who we become and don't become. To become a Christian, there is a sense of training that's involved. There's a difference, in fact, between try and train. You notice that? They sound the same. Are you reading your Bible this week? Well, I'm trying to. You praying this week? Well, I'm trying to. Ask a marathoner. <laughs> I want you to try to run a marathon without training. Just, just go, try. <laughs> go try to run a marathon without training. Unless you're some kind of freak of nature and there's people out there like that, people out there like that, you're going to fail miserably because trying and training are not friends. <laughs> you want to try, that's just like, I'll give it my best shot. But training in order that you can do it, that's different. Training yourself in thoughts, words, and deeds, that's the magic there. Christianity should cost you. Does it cost you? Does it cost you to sit here right now? Does it cost you to pray? Does it cost you to sing? When you sing songs of worship, are you just parroting the words? Or does it cost you to say, I'm going to use my voice, I'm going to expend myself, and I'm going to sing the songs? I don't like the song. I don't care. I'm singing it anyway. Got to cost you guys. Last few verses. Let's land the plane here. Look at how Jesus responds to these people. I love this because Jesus comes to bat. He comes to bat for Mary. He says, leave her alone. <laughs> leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Hey, you're always going to have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you're not always going to have me. She has done what she could. And she has anointed my body beforehand for my burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And we have just fulfilled that verse. 
Jesus sees Mary wasting herself on Jesus, and Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a great thing. In fact, I think that should inspire confidence for you and for me. Don't ever fear wasting anything on Jesus. Jesus has your back, and Jesus knows that what you're doing is good. If you're thinking about giving yourself in sacrificial ways to Jesus, you're thinking rightly. And know that this is not something to be afraid of because real love will lead you to sacrifice. Real love will cost you. You know this. Real love will cost you. Mothers feed their babies multiple times in the middle of the night at the sacrifice of their sleep because they love their kids. Guys will watch romantic comedies with girls they like at the sacrifice of good entertainment because they care about the person they're with. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. God loved us at the sacrifice of his son. Real love will lead you to sacrifice, and anything less than that is false love. It's only a profession. It's word and not deed. By the way, Jesus will commend what man often condemns, and often the opposite is true too. Jesus is the one who's going to commend you. People around you are not going to be your judge when you die. When you stand before God after your life expires, you're not going to also stand before your parents or your best friend or your husband or your wife or your kids. You're only going to stand before God who knows your heart inside and out, and he will either commend you or condemn you. You want his commendation. You want to aim for, well done, good and faithful servant. Anything less than that, and you're not aiming high enough. Who cares what people think if Jesus approves of you? Never fear wasting anything on Jesus. Started thinking about prom proposals again. Some of you guys set the bar really high. I just want to say that. You know, I was looking at the creative ways you've done this, and I thought about ways. I'm like, I don't know if I ever did anything that crazy. I can't remember what I did. But it must not have been that good if I can't remember it, right? But then I started looking at bad ones, and I thought, okay, I feel better. <laughs> like this guy. Here's a cutie from my cutie. Prom? <laughs> he writes on the cutie. That's pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. By the way, I threw a cutie at a cat this week. He, he had it coming. He had it coming. That cat was evil. I was telling Kate Bates, this cat attacked me. He swatted at me. He hissed at me. So he had the cutie coming. No longer invited into my yard. Here's another prom proposal. If you got to go, go with me. <laughs> it's terrible. How about this one? Give her a Big Mac and write prom on the inside? Oh, come on. This last one is particularly special because I still don't understand it. Let's see if you do any better than I did. <laughs> Will you be the chicken to my nugget at prom? <laughs> Just so you understand though, he's dressed as a chicken nugget in a bathtub of chicken nuggets wrapped in plastic wrap? Like I, 
I don't get it. I don't get it. All right. Let me take a vote. Let me take a vote. Ladies, just be honest. Would most of you be offended if your, your, your prom date asked you in these ways? No, okay. You totally blew my point. All right. All right. You're not playing nice. If you were my daughter, I would say, kick that guy to the curb. Like, there's no way. Some of them are funny. I'll grant you that. But if a guy is just writing prom on a cutie, I think for most of you guys, you'd be like, am I not worth more than that? Give me a little more. Come on, something, dude. Think about it. At least an orange, right, Keaton? At least an orange. But often when we bring our worship to Christ, sometimes it's just as offensive as the cutie to the prom date you're asking out. We're not giving Jesus very much. And one thing I want you to learn from Mary in this sermon is that wasting yourself for Jesus is such a good thing. And that when you fail to do that, you're really cheating yourself because you're not really engaging in what genuine devotion looks like. I said that real worship of Jesus should be two things. It's thoughtful. It's both thoughtful, thoughtfully given and personally costly. I hope really as you think about your devotional life this week, as you think about your church attendance, that you take those two things in mind and say, is my worship of Jesus thoughtfully given and personally costly? And if not, I would love to see you change that. In fact, this coming week at small groups, I've got some questions I think are going to be helpful to you to figure that out. With that, let's pray.